We're taking a look at just a 24-hour period in history, Jesus um, going to the cross. So what we have is, is we have uh, in the city of Jerusalem is where this story takes place. The city of Jerusalem is the capital for the, the Jewish people, the Israelite people. They are in Jerusalem at this point in time because of the Passover celebration. Jesus himself, he's not from Jerusalem. He, he's from Galilee, Nazareth. He, he wasn't born in Jerusalem. And he and, and hundreds of thousands of other Jews have come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this thing called Passover. You say, what's Passover? Passover, for the Jews, is a celebration of how God delivered them from slavery in the nation of Egypt. In this point in history, they've been celebrating it for 1,500 years In fact, the Jews, they still celebrate Passover today. But they came to celebrate how God set them free from slavery in the nation of Egypt. And they've made a pilgrimage and just come to celebrate. So the city is jam-packed with people. That's why Jesus is in Jerusalem for this celebration. When he gets to Jerusalem, he is welcomed at first, but then the tide turns against him where the religious leaders of the Jews... They, they, they don't like Jesus at all. And they're actually kind of the authority, the legal authority for the Jews. Their, their religious system was also their legal system. And they had a group of people called the Sanhedrin, which were like their, their uh, supreme court, so to speak. And so they, they don't like Jesus. They, in fact, they want to end Jesus' ministry and they want to end his life. And so they bring accusations against him. Two primarily. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus is walking around claiming to be the son of God. Guy shows up on earth, he's 30 years old, and he's just claiming to be the son of God, claiming to be God himself. He's 33 at this point. He has three years of ministry under his belt. They also accuse Jesus of treason against the Roman Empire because Rome was ruling over Jerusalem at this time. And to commit treason against the Roman Empire was punishable by death, by execution, by crucifixion. So they bring Jesus up on these, on these accusations. They have a trial of their own, but they want Jesus executed, and they cannot carry out the execution because it's treason against Rome. So they bring Jesus to uh, trial before Pilate, who's the Roman governor of Jerusalem at the time. Now, the people who welcome Jesus in the city are now bloodthirsty, and they're angry, and the, the tensions are mounting, and there's a potential riot on the hands, and they bring Jesus before Pilate. They say, these are our accusations, and Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus. And in his interrogation of Jesus, Pilate quickly understands that these people are jealous of Jesus. They have something against him, and they just want him to be killed. And Pilate makes a profound statement. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Basically, he says, I find this man innocent of the charge of treason against Rome. Even though he's claiming to be the king of the Jews, he's not trying to usurp the authority of the Roman Empire. But Pilate knows that if he releases Jesus to the people, it's going to cause a riot. Pilate had some political uh, mishaps, and so he doesn't have a lot of political capital with the people. So what he decides is this. He decides to invoke a custom that they had at that time, which was to release a a, a prisoner, to pardon a prisoner at Passover. So he gives the people the choice. Do you want me to release Jesus of Nazareth or do you want me to release another prisoner? They shout for another prisoner. They shout for a man named Barabbas. Barabbas is a convicted criminal. What was he convicted of? Treason against the Roman Empire. He started an insurrection, a revolt. It was violent. He murdered people. He's guilty, has been sentenced and condemned to death. That's who they want. So that's who Pilate gives him. And then he asks the question, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they demand crucifixion, which is a form of execution. 
Now, crucifixion was only reserved for people who were not Roman citizens. It was reserved for the lowest of low people, the down and dirty criminals. They would not even execute their own citizens by crucifixion. In fact, a Roman senator or statesman, his name is Cicero, he says this about crucifixion. He said, crucifixion is an act so abominable that it is near impossible to find words to adequately express or explain what it is. So they demand the release of Barabbas. Pilate releases Barabbas, and he turns Jesus over to the Roman officers to be executed. And we talked about that encounter between Jesus and Barabbas, the idea that a, a guilty man, a convicted man, goes free and lives his life, and Jesus assumes the punishment and the guilt of Barabbas. And then we we talked about last week, that's where we picked up our story, how Jesus was then taken to another part of the praetorium where he was, and history tells us this is what they would do to the prisoners, is they would beat them, they would scourge them, whip them, a process starting crucifixion. Crucifixion was meant to kill you slowly. It wasn't meant to kill you quickly. It was a public event. It would sometimes take days for the prisoner to actually die from crucifixion. And the people that were at the trial have now followed Jesus and and the officials to this spot, and they beat Jesus. And after they are finished beating Jesus, they put the cross on his shoulders, and it's the beam of the cross, the the horizontal beam of the cross weighed anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. And this was not just Jesus. This is any prisoner. History records this for us. The Romans kept great, great historical records. And they would have to carry the beam of this cross from the praetorium, to Golgotha. Now, Golgotha is the hill where they killed people, where they executed them. It was a hill outside the city gates, tall. Everyone could see it. It's called Golgotha or Calvaria, which literally means place of the skull. And they called it place of the skull for a couple of reasons. Either one, it looked like a skull, or two, it was littered with the skulls of all the people that the Romans had executed. See, the Romans did this very publicly because they wanted people to see that if you mess with us, this is what happens to you. They made a sport out of it, and people actually kind of enjoyed it, but yet at the same time, it was very tense for them. So Jesus has to carry this. It's approximately one-third of a mile, mostly uphill. Fact is, is that he couldn't make it. He was physically exhausted. Jesus stood trial uh, probably four or five times before he got to Pilate by his own people. And they too beat him and didn't feed him. And he'd been up for over 24 hours, physically exhausted. Now due to the loss of blood and the way that they beat him and scourged him, he can't make the journey. And so he continues to fall. And finally, the Roman officers step in and they force a man named Simon, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross, an innocent man to carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the way. And Simon carries it to the point of execution to Golgotha. And that's where we pick up our story. We're going to take a look at it in the book of Mark. This story, I've got to tell you which story we're going to look at today. The encounter is with a man the Bible simply calls the centurion. We don't get his name. We don't know anything about him other than he's a Roman officer. And his encounter takes place at the end of this story. And we're going to talk about that. But I want to pick up in Mark. This story of the centurion appears in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read it out of Mark because that's where we've been the whole time. And I'll pull in some details from the other, the other writers of the Gospels. But here's what it says. We're going to read uh, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 15, 24 through 39. It says this, Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would each get a piece. 
It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries or other prisoners were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. They said he saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. And even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell and the whole land went dark until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But they said, wait, let's see whether or not Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him, and this is our last voice, verse, saw how he died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Now, we don't encounter the centurion until the end of our, our, our story, but I want to work back to that point. So we ended with Simon carrying the beam of the cross to uh, Golgotha or, or the place of the skull. What would have happened next is what they would do to the prisoners at that time is they would, they would take the prisoners, they would strip them completely naked again. They were crucified uh, naked in front of all of these people. The people that were there when Jesus was accused, sentenced, when he was beaten, and when he carried his cross have now also followed him to this point. The tension is overwhelming. You could cut it with a knife. The Jews didn't like the Romans. The Romans didn't necessarily like the Jews, and they're all converging on this moment of to see this man's death, and it's, it's you know, there's rioting uh, just probably milliseconds away if one thing goes uh, off kilter. And they would, they would strip the, the, the prisoner naked in front of all of these people. All the renditions that we see have Jesus or, or a prisoner being crucified with some type of loincloth on, but the fact remains is that that is more for us than it is reality. They were, they were bare naked. They would take the, the horizontal beam of the cross that the prisoner carried and they would attach it to the vertical beam. It was about, uh, in total, six foot to eight foot tall. They would lay it on the ground and then they would take the prisoner and they would, Jesus in this case, they would lay them onto that cross and form their body into the shape of that cross. They would then most likely take ropes and they would tie the body of the person to the cross so that they could physically attach or secure the prisoner to that cross. And the way that they attached the prisoners to the cross is they would do the arms first. They would take six to eight inch nails and they would drive them through the wrists of the prisoners. Now, all the renditions that we see show that they were through the hands, but the hands could not withstand the weight of the prisoner on the cross. It would have simply ripped right through. And they would do it through the wrist. And when you drive a nail through the wrist, it doesn't necessarily break any bones. It goes right in between the bones. And as they would drive the nail through the wrist, it would sever the large median nerve in the wrist, which would send excruciating bolts of pain and a burning sensation throughout the body. And it would cause the hands to form into a claw-like grip, most likely resulting in permanent paralysis in the hands. And after they would secure the wrist with the nails, they would then move to the feet. Now, some believe what they would do is actually stand the cross up 
vertically and then secure the feet to the cross. Some believed that they would do it on the ground. But regardless, what they would do is this, is they would take the feet of the prisoner and they would bend at the knee until the feet were flat against the vertical beam. And they would stack the other foot on top of that and take nails and drive it through their feet into the cross to secure them. Now, what they would do is, is they would then have to stand this cross up and sink it down in the foundation that they had. And they, they had built foundations already because that's what this hill, this Golgotha was for. It was simply to execute prisoners. So it was all, all prepared. And so as they raised this cross up, however they did it, probably took every Roman uh, soldier there to do it with ropes and pulling this thing up. They would then sink it down into this hole. And as they would do that, it would crush down the weight of the prisoner against the nails. Now, as I said, crucifixion was a long, long process, not designed to kill you quickly. Question is, how long did Jesus survive on the cross? Some prisoners it lasted a day. Some prisoners, the only way that they could kill them was they would, they would break their legs, and so they could no longer breathe, and it would speed up the death process. We know that Jesus was on the cross for six hours. How do we know that? Mark says that it started at nine in the morning, and Jesus breathed his last breath at three in the afternoon. Six hours. Question I was thinking about was, what was it like for those six hours to be on the cross? We don't know much from the records, but we do know a lot from history. But what we do know from the biblical account is this, is that while Jesus was on that cross, the people that had followed him and that had watched this whole processional and just were waiting for him to die had nothing but uh, mock words of mockery to say. They continued to mock the fact that he was claiming to be the son of God, that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews, that he was claiming to forgive and set free. And they wanted Jesus. They said things like, if you are God, if you're the son of God, why don't you just call down angels from heaven? Why don't you just save yourself? Why don't you get off this cross? They, they, they wanted Jesus to prove by whatever they wanted him to do that he was really the son of God. And they thought, they used the name Elijah. You say, who's Elijah? Elijah was, a, was an Old Testament prophet that we read about, did some great things. And they thought, well, maybe he can invoke or maybe he's saying that Elijah will come and rescue him. Let, let's see. That was the, what Jesus was hearing. There were, there were also people there who were weeping and mourning Jesus' death. His mother was probably at the cross. His disciples were at the cross observing this. They weren't vocal, but they were there watching this. Now, aside from the pain of having nails driven through your body, the most difficult thing to do in the process of crucifixion was breathe. The reason is, is you're suspended in the air and the weight of your body and the force of gravity is pulling you down. And so it would have pulled the prisoner out and down, exposing their chest and expanding you know, the chest cavity, which makes it incredibly difficult to breathe. And the way that they would breathe, and here's the amazing thing is, is that you can look in the historical record and find that modern day medical doctors, having studied the records of, of the crucifixion process, have written kind of what happens medically to a prisoner as they were on the cross, and in this case, Jesus. In order to breathe, what they had to do was they had to, they had to take their feet like this, and they had to push up with their legs. They had to pull with their shoulders, and as they pushed up with their legs and pulled with their shoulders, their back that had been severely beaten and is just raw would then rub against the, the rough 
splintered wood, scraping that, and they had to flex their elbows to get themselves. And as they flex their elbows, it would twist against and grind against the nails in their, in their wrist. And they would be able just to get up and just to take a and sink back down. Each breath was agonizing and excruciating, and in fact, it just contributed to their death. The very thing that they were doing to stay alive was the very thing that was killing them because it was so labor-intensive just to breathe. And I was thinking, you know, then what is the actual cause of death for somebody who's being crucified? They say that there are roughly five potential causes of death for someone being crucified. Number one would be acute shock due to the blood loss. They would simply have lost so much blood, their body would go into shock and they would die. Second is that they would die from dehydration. They were losing so much blood, losing so much bodily fluid, weren't eating, weren't doing any of that. In Jesus' case, you know, he hadn't probably in, in over 24 hours. The, th- the third is suffocation. They would literally uh, just die from the, the weight of their own body, not being able to properly breathe and their lungs filling with, with fluid. The fourth was a heart attack. They would die. Uh, their heart would, would, would stop cardiac arrest due to the stress that the body was under. And then the fifth was uh, rupture of the heart, or the heart essentially exploding due to congestive heart failure, fluid building up around the lining of the heart. They, they, they estimate or, or believe that Jesus most likely died probably of the final two, either one of a heart attack or two of an actual rupturing of the heart due to the intense amount of stress and pain that he was underneath. So this was a six-hour process that he went through with all of that. At the end of this process, and Jesus says a few things, and, and I'm not going to get into everything that he says because that's a sermon series in and of itself, but at the end of it, at, the, at three o'clock, after six hours, the Bible says that he gathers the strength to take a breath and to speak, and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says a final phrase, which he says, it is finished, and He's dead. Now, when that happens, the Bible says there's a great earthquake that takes place. But the amazing thing, and at the end of our story that we read as Jesus breathes his last, is where we encounter this centurion. And we encounter him in a position to where he is saying that truly this man was the Son of God. And Luke's gospel gives us a a, a different detail. Here's what it says in Luke. It says, when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened, he worshipped God and said, surely this man was innocent. Luke lets us know that he he worships God. And he declares that this man was innocent, or a better translation is is righteous. He's a righteous man. But Matthew and Mark tell us that he exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God. Now, I find it interesting about this man. We, we don't hear from him at, at all, right? This is like a byline in the text, and then the, the story just continues, and we never hear anything more about this centurion. Who is he? Why did he, did he make this, this decision? Why did he do what he did? How did he come to this decision? I think it's really a better way to ask it, but we'll start with who he is. We don't know his name. The Bible never tells us his name. We know his, his rank because he's called a centurion, He's a Roman officer. The word centurion literally means a hundred, so he was in charge of a regiment of a hundred men. The scripture that we just looked at also told us that he oversaw the execution process. So he was in charge of uh, carrying out executions for the Roman government, at least in Jerusalem and in, in, in the areas that they oversaw there. Now, a centurion was an, an officer. 
And you didn't just become an officer. You had to make your way up through the ranks to be an officer. This centurion probably started from very humble beginnings, came from a, a, a not a well-to-do family, became a just Roman soldier fighting in battle. And throughout the years, and it would take years to get to this spot, he proved himself in battle. He was war-torn. He was rough. He was gritty. He was tough. He was dependable. He showed great leadership quality. He was a man who knew how to take care of business he had done more things than probably any of us could ever imagine or think. Uh, he may be the equivalent of maybe like a special forces guy uh, in our military today, but he was just, you know, he was a tough dude. Had no issues, no qualms with taking care of business and didn't really care how it happened as long as it happened. But this isn't just some guy. That's who he is historically. He, he would have had, had special type of armor, and when he walked around, everyone would have known that he was a centurion. He's very important and an integral part into the Roman Empire, and especially their army. Now, we only encounter him at the end of the story, but that detail of them saying that he oversaw the execution process tells us that he's been part of this story from the very beginning. Because the Bible says that when Pilate... Uh, turned Jesus over to the Roman uh, officers for uh, him to be scourged. He turned them over. So this centurion was the man that that Pilate turned Jesus over to. He was there at the beginning. And then this was the man who led Jesus to that spot in the praetorium where they would take care of the beating. And he oversaw the, the scourging and the beating of Jesus. He oversaw the process of getting Jesus from, from the praetorium to Golgotha. He oversaw the process of of, of putting Jesus on the tree, oversaw the process of, of raising him up. And, and this whole death process, that was his whole job. That, that's what he did. And he did this not just for Jesus. It wasn't a one-time event. He did this for a living. He oversaw the death and execution of probably hundreds, if not maybe thousands of, of people. This was his job. And we find his, this guy at the end of the story making a statement about Jesus that his own people wouldn't even make making a statement about Jesus that we accept as true today, but then people were, wanted Jesus dead for it. And here's kind of the question that I, I want to maybe end on today, so to speak, is why? Why did he make that decision? How did he get to the point to where he could say that and exercise that kind of faith? Because here's a man who we have no record of ever meeting Jesus. We don't. We don't know if he, ever, if he even knew who Jesus was until this point. We have no record of him hearing Jesus preach. We have no record of him seeing Jesus do miracles and, and, and making these amazing statements. The only record that we have is here is a man who watched Jesus do one thing and one thing only, and that's suffer. That's it. That's the only thing that this man was ever witness to that we know of, was the suffering of Jesus. I left out some details in the story that I think are important to us understanding how and why he made that decision. The moment that Pilate handed off Jesus to him was a moment that I think was different for him than any other prisoner because he heard Pilate, he heard his leader, the ranking official, say that Jesus was innocent. I find no fault in this man. He heard that. He heard Pilate make that claim. I wonder how many innocent prisoners were condemned to execution by crucifixion. We don't know, but I would guess it's not many. He saw a guilty man who he knew was guilty and condemned 
go free. And a man who was innocent, declared innocent by, by the government, right? Be executed. So that was in his mind. Secondly, he, he, he never heard Jesus defend himself. We have no record anywhere of Jesus trying to defend his innocence, of Jesus trying to, to get out of this process. He was quiet most of the time. Only spoke a few times. He would have also been intrigued, I think, by the fact that when Jesus got to the hill of Golgotha, that there were some women that were following behind, and this was a customary practice, but they offered Jesus a drink. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. And when I was growing up, I was told the reason that Jesus didn't drink it is because that Jesus didn't drink. But I don't think that's right. The wine mixed with myrrh was actually a narcotic. It was an anesthetic, and it was given to people who were being killed by crucifixion to dull and to numb the pain. The anesthetic. And Jesus refused that. He refused to take anything that would take away from this process, this, this suffering and this sacrifice that he was making. He refused to take anything that would somehow impair his mental faculties because he still had work to do. I bet that the centurion thought that it was interesting that he would refuse that. It was interesting that he didn't hear Jesus cursing and mocking and trying to declare his innocence. Because the next thing that he heard, I think is what really began to turn or tip the scale for him. Luke records for us that as they are nailing Jesus to the cross, that Jesus makes a statement. Luke writes it this way. And he said, speaking of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, when we read that in English, we see the word said. He said, as if he said it one time, right? A single completed action in the past. You know, my degree is in Spanish, not even in theology. And I began to look at that, and I thought, you know, what? I wonder what the word said really means. Would you think that's kind of dumb? You know what said means, Josh. You say it all the time. I, was, I, wonder, I wonder what tense it is in. You know, and I found, I didn't know this, that in Greek, they have a tense called the imperfect tense. And then I thought, oh, well, we, we have that in Spanish. We have the imperfect tense. It's a past tense, and we, we don't necessarily have it in English. But the imperfect tense is different from just like a simple past tense. And stay with me, we're getting to a point, all right? In that, in English, we say, I went to the store. I said it to him. I did this, and it's just one action. But in in Spanish and in Greek, they have this tense that communicates a repeated action in the past. And in English, we would say it like this. When I was five years old, I used to always go to my grandma's house, and when we were there, we always ate candy. Now, we understand that when we say it like that, that happened a lot. I probably ate a lot of candy when I was five years old, and I went to my grandmother's house. That's the imperfect tense. Something that happens over and over again. Well, the word said in the original language is in the imperfect tense. And I'm not saying all this just to geek out on language. What I'm saying is is this, is that we should properly or better translate the word said, and it should say, he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Small detail, but the implication is huge. That literally, the ref- it was like a refrain or a chorus coming out of Jesus that he said over and over again. It was repeated, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Again, agonizing. 
excruciating pain. Did he yell it? Did he whisper it? I don't know, but he said it. He was saying it. And these, these Roman uh, soldiers and this centurion were, were, were privy to this. They were hearing it. Because he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they were doing. And the next part of that sentence, separated by a comma, says, and they cast lots for his clothes. So he was talking specifically to the soldiers. I guarantee you that that centurion never heard anybody say that before. Never heard anybody speak like that while they're being crucified. He's forgiving? Number one, what do we need to be forgiven of? Number two, why is he saying that? Why is he speaking that way? And then on top of that, when Jesus is, is raised up and is crucified, the Bible says that he's got a thief on his left and a thief on his right. And in other gospels record for us, there's a conversation that takes place between the three. One of the guys, the thief says, hey, you know, you, you, you're supposed to be the son of God. Why don't you save yourself? Why don't you get us all out of here? Come on. And the other thief says, hey, look, speaking to his buddy, he said, hey, we, we're guilty. We know we're guilty. They, they believe that these two revolutionaries, they were, they were uh, in cahoots with Barabbas. They were leaders of the insurrection as well. Barabbas got to go free, but they got to suffer the crime. He says, hey, look, we're guilty. We know we're guilty, but this man is innocent. How did he know? This man is innocent. And he turns his attention to Jesus. He says, hey, you, Jesus, will you please remember me when you get to your kingdom, when you get to heaven? And Jesus looks at this man or says to this man, I assure you today, you'll be with me in paradise. He, he essentially forgives this man. So the, the centurion hears himself be forgiven, and now he hears this man forgive a guilty man. Right? A, a guilty man, a condemned man who just said he was guilty, who deserves this punishment. Jesus forgives him. And, and back it up. What's amazing about the fact that Jesus was forgiving the soldiers as they were crucifying him is that the soldiers weren't even asking him for it. They didn't say, will you please forgive us? No, Jesus is just forgiving. That, that's who he is. You know, God forgave all of us before we ever asked for it. Right? That's his posture towards us. And we see that represented in Jesus, that he's forgiving on the cross. And they're not even asking for it. The thief does, but he's forgiving so he, he's hearing that. And then another thing that I think would have impacted the centurion is this. Is, is that at noon, the Bible says after three hours at noon, the whole place went dark. Just bam, darkness for three straight hours from noon to 3 p.m. And history records as other, other uh, documents that say, hey, at the same time, they were writing independently. It went dark. It was just darkness. It's kind of supernatural. And then at the end of that three hours, when Jesus breathes his last and says, it is finished and says that there was an earthquake that shook where they were sitting, shook the city. And also independent documents and things report that around that same time there was there was an earthquake. It's at that moment that the centurion. Makes that statement. Says, as Luke says, he worshiped God. He proclaimed, he extolled. And he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Nobody prompted him. There was not a pastor there to tell him. He had never heard Jesus speak, never saw Jesus do a miracle, only watched Jesus suffer. I mean, he had a bird's eye view, front, 
row seat. And whatever it was, if it was one of those things, if it was a few of those things, or if it was a culmination of those things, it culminated into the point where he worshiped God and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Now, we, we, we don't know what his life was like after that. We have no idea. But, but here's the thing. I said, who, who is the centurion? And we know who he was historically. But the reality is, and I'm so glad the Bible doesn't give him a name because it allows us to identify with him. Because we're all the centurion. Because that centurion put Jesus on the cross. He beat him. He mocked him. He spit on him. He, he nailed him to the cross. He lifted him up. He was a guilty partner in putting an innocent man on that cross. And you and I are as well. We all have some level of guilt, right? We, we all have something that we've done in our lives that we know is fundamentally morally wrong. That it's wrong. We know that, that we cannot forgive ourselves. We cannot do something to undo that. As Billy Graham would say, there is a God-shaped size hole in the heart of every man. And we just try to fill it with a bunch of stuff. It can only be filled with him. But we, we're all him. We all have done something and are guilty of something. And whether you want to admit your guilt or not, that's between you and him. But we're guilty. And I'm not here to parade on that guilt but just that we are the centurion. That's who we are. And my, my question is this. Is, is what is your vantage point of Jesus? What is your, your vantage point of the cross? Is, is Jesus just simply a historical figure? Which he is. He is a historical figure. We know that even outside the Bible. Is he, is he just a prophet? Is he just a religious man? Or is he just maybe who he said he was? Is he the son of God? And do you think that there is too much guilt in your life for Jesus to forgive you? Do you think that you've gone beyond what you ascertain would be the furthest reaches of God's grace? Do you think that you, you can never come back into the fold or that God wouldn't want to do anything for you because of, of your life? I, I don't know where you may be, but here's what I want you to know. This centurion, <laughs> a moment, moments prior, he, he's mocking and spitting and beating Jesus, and Jesus is forgiving him, and now he's seated at the foot of the cross, and he's saying that this was the Son of God. There is no perfect spot in your life. There is nothing that you have to do to try to be good enough for God. You don't have to have a certain amount of things in order. I think you just have to have somewhat of a semblance of a desire to say, maybe he is. Because you, want, you notice what the centurion said? He said, truly this was the Son of God. He didn't say, truly this is. We know that he is because we're on the other side of the resurrection. This man said, was. That's wrong, isn't it? Because he is. But it wasn't wrong enough. It was enough for him to worship God. And I think it was enough for God to say, you're exactly why I came. For Jesus to say, here's the thing. Jesus said it is finished, which literally means paid in full. That's what it means. What was paid in full? The sins of humanity. 
the guilt of humanity. And you'll notice that the, the, the Roman centurion said what he said after Jesus declared, it is finished. You don't have to be theologically correct to enter into a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't even have to agree 100% with everything at the beginning. You just have to be able to say, truly, Jesus, this man is who he says he is. I don't know any more than that. I don't even know how I arrived at this conclusion. But there's something in me that says, yeah, he's real. Yeah, he, he, he's not just a historical figure. He, he's not just a prophet. He did rise again. And he's alive and he's active. So what's your vantage point? Only you can answer that question. I can't answer that for you. You may not be able to answer it today or you might be able to answer it today. But there will come a time when you do have to answer it. What's your vantage point? Jesus made a statement early on in his ministry. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he wasn't talking being lifted up with hands and worshiping him. He was talking about when I'm lifted up on that cross over that city for everyone to see, I will draw all people to myself. He drew that centurion and he's drawing you. And the question is, Will you allow yourself to be drawn? Will you take that step and say, just maybe, he is who he says he is?